Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome JL Reppert to the Philacrosophy podcast. JL is the new head coach at Holy Cross, former offensive coordinator at Maryland, and really fired up to have him on the show. JL, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Jamie. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, awesome. So uh, give us the uh, give us the rundown on on um, you know what it's like to be drinking out of a fire hose, starting <laughs> a, a a head coaching job in January as the season begins. Yeah, I uh, have told people, you know, when I closed my eyes and, and dreamed about taking over a head coaching job, this is not the way it would have happened. Um, five days prior to the season starting and during a pandemic. Um, but it's been great. Um, you know, the, the school has been great. The administration's been great. Um, you know, and the guys, the guys have been very welcoming. Um, you know, the staff here has been huge in getting me ready. And um, it's been, it's been fun. It's, something new every day and new challenges that, that present themselves. Uh, we kind of have to figure out on the fly. Yeah. Awesome. Well, as I normally do with guests who come on, especially first time guests, um, can you give us a little uh, rundown on your journey, kind of where you got started um, so people can kind of know where you got it going and, you know, right through uh, Naval Academy into your coaching and all the rest of it. It'd be awesome if you could give us that. Yeah. Thanks, Jamie. I, I, um, I grew up in Baltimore, so I'm not going to get into the debate of the hotbeds. Um, but I did was one of those guys that grew up with a cradle in his uh, or a stick in his cradle, um, you know. And and my dad was a lacrosse official for 30 years, um, and so I grew up running around and, and chasing his coattails uh, to different games. At that time, um, you know, for the college, it was not quite as big as it is now, and um, so I was a ball boy for 
you know, Maryland Navy games and Hopkins Towson games and all the, the big rivalry games uh, in the Baltimore area because he was officiating. So got a firsthand knowledge doing that. Um, and then on Sundays, they would have the post-collegiate club uh, leagues playing. Um, and there was no MLL at the time. There was no PLL at that time. Um, so that was basically the best of the best competing on Sundays. Um, and again, I was sometimes a ball boy. I was sometimes the clock boy. I was a little bit of everything. Um, I just got to be around the game and just fell in love with it. Um, with Fortune, it was, it, it was an awesome experience, man. I didn't even realize how good I had it. <laughs> um, how fun that was. So um, incredible to give us a, give us a quick story of a, of a memory of like some of the greatest games or players or things that you ever got to witness on the sidelines there. I mean, I just remember like back then, you know, Towson and, and Hopkins was a huge rivalry always on a Saturday night. Uh, the stadium was packed, um, you know, and, and just the crowd was going nuts uh, all on that one. At that time, it was just one side of the stands. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the echo would reverberate across. Um, those were some of the great games. Towson State back in the day. Yep. Um, you know, and I think just going to, to Navy and, and uh, you know, Navy Marine Corps Stadium was, was awesome. Uh, one quick funny story. I, I, it was a Navy Rutgers game and, uh, you know, something happened. I was a ball boy for Navy and they, so I had a Navy helmet on. They put like this Navy thing on to make me official and um, my dad is having a pregame meeting with uh, Coach Hayes at the time at Rutgers and I, I had to get something out of the car. So I run up to him. And I go, Hey dad, can I get the keys to the car? And I'm wearing full on Navy gear. <laughs> and uh, you know, coach Hayes was less than pleased that, that the referee's son in full Navy gear was asking for the car keys. So that was, <laughs> that was a learning experience for me about being cool and, and understanding your, uh, your, your surroundings a bit. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. I, I mean, growing up, geez, you know, watching Coach Petromala and all those Mount Washington and Maryland yeah. Lacrosse Club and Toyota. You know, the, Toyota. Uh, back then, when I was growing up, Toyota wasn't was just kind of getting going. Um, MAB Paints up in Philly, Long Island Lacrosse Club would come down, so it was just it was awesome. Um, and and just being able to see those guys, it was it was really cool experience. Yeah, incredible. And then you ended up at Navy. And then, yep, was uh, went to Loyola High School in in, in Baltimore. Uh, played at Loyola High School, and then went to Navy um, and played played four years there for Coach Mead um, and Coach Tillman um, at the time. And uh, graduated and went went into the Marine Corps. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps for nine years, and always had the itch to coach and, and stay in the game. Um, and was fortunate every stop I had, I was able to coach high school. So uh, wow. coached out in, in San. Diego for a bit at Poway um, and then went up to grad school in Monterey um, in California and coached at the Robert Louis Stevenson school. Um, came back to DC and worked at Gonzaga, coached at Gonzaga a little bit, Episcopal high school in St. Albans. Um, so I was able to keep my kind of keep my feet wet in the game and, and stay active. Um, and then came time to figure out what I wanted to, to try to do as a next step and, and really wanted to get into college coaching and uh, coach Tillman, at the time was at Harvard and, and gave me the opportunity to go up there, which I'm so fortunate for. Um, so I was a year there, uh, was spent a little bit of time at Washington college, um, back to Navy. And then, um, was at Maryland for, for six years. with Coach wow. It's amazing that you, 
So you were like 31 or 32 years old when you decided to make coaching your full-time career. Yeah. A little bit of a different path. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that it would, it, it had been that, that you're in the uh, Marines Marine Corps for that long. I was, I got my first head coaching job when I was 31 and I felt like I'd been an assistant forever. Yeah. Um, man, that's uh, that's awesome. And so, you know, it took you how many years then to, of an assistant, like 12, 12 years or something like that. Um, yeah. About 10, uh, I don't know exactly about 10, 10 to 12 years, something like that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about your coaching stops and, and what you kind of learned from your mentors along the way. Oh man. Um, you know, I think coach Tillman, again, I'll kind of, maybe I'll work backwards. Might, might be a little bit easier there. Yeah, um, you idea. know, I think coach Tillman at Maryland, certainly the results speak for themselves and, and the way those guys are playing right now, man, that he's got them rolling. Um, but I think it's just, it's, it's the work ethic and, and really, you know, it's just um, spending day to day, getting better and, and being really detail oriented and disciplined with, with the work ethic um, and, and those practices there and credit to the guys at Maryland, they are competitive practices um, and the guys work really hard. Um, and, and, and I think the last thing from him is just preparation, you know, and, and making sure you, you think through, um, talk through, and, and even if you don't always practice through all of the scenarios, but you're prepared for things on game day. Um, you know, Coach Soul was great at Navy. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, he's one of those guys um, who was a super talented player um, who was, I watched growing up, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and one of those guys that was big on just developing skill and, and from an individual level and, and letting the individual skill take over and, and help make the team better. Um, you know, and, and just, again, his weight room and kind of working on the physical side of things and the conditioning along with the skill development was was great lessons that I learned there. Um, you know, and, and I was able to, I worked with coach Shirk at Washington college the year he, he took over there. Um, again, just, a, a another guy, just work ethic and motivation, um, and how to really relate to the players and, and get those guys to play probably above their level, um, on a day-to-day -day basis was, was really fun to watch. Um, and I think the last guy that I really learned so much from and is, continues to be a mentor for me is, is Coach Mead, who I played for at Navy. Um, you know, when I, when I think of a leader, um, you know, and somebody that cares so much about his guys and the players um, and is so loyal, he, he is that. And, and that's something that I try to, try to use to this day. That's awesome. And how would you, how would you take your experiences from, from the academy as a student as well as your Marine Corps years and how do they help you as uh in your in your journey here to be a leader on the lacrosse field i i think a lot of it is is similar um you know it, it's about leading young for us young men um in the marine corps it was young men and women um 18 to 22 year old is the demographic apparently that i that i like to uh, work with um because that's a lot of the the marines that you're leading is are that um i, I think a lot of it is relationships it's it's being understanding of people and knowing people enough to be able to mac maximize what they can do and their strengths um, and, and having a good relationship with them so that when you challenge them and get them to build on their or improve their weaknesses, they realize that it comes from a good place and it's well-intentioned. Um, you know, and I think just 
a lot of people talk about leadership by example. Um, and I firmly believe that's not true. Um, you, you set the example, which gives you the ability to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so leading is pushing people past what they believe they can do. Um, and, and in order to do that, you have to do it yourself so that they give that trust in you and you, you earn that. Um, you know, and I think the last part of it is just practice. I mean, in the Marine Corps, you're, you're practicing for a game. A game is certainly different <laughs> um, yeah. in the Marine Corps, but that's basically what you're doing. Your training is just your practicing to, to get ready to, to compete. Really cool. Um, so you uh, end up getting this job in January. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, you've been preparing for, for, you know, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then again, as I always say to people, it, it, you can't really prepare for it. It's like having a kid. You just, you can read all the books you want, but it's just, once it's there, it's there, it's different. So how's it been for you? How are you enjoying it? And tell me what's exciting about what you're doing. Yeah, it's been great. And you are hundred percent correct. <laughs> Um, you can prepare for it all you want. Um, there's just, it's different. And, and um, you know, the, the coaches that, that I work for and, and certainly guys that I kind of grew up with in the coaching ranks that are now head coaches um, have said that, um, you know, and, and so it's just different when you're the decision maker and, and yeah. it's, it's less about giving suggestions and recommendations and now you're accepting those and having to make a decision. But um, it, it's been great. Um Again, I feel like, you know, the Marine Corps prepared me to do a lot of this. Like I I basically was a head coach um, in the Marine Corps. So I've had a little bit of that experience, um, less so from an athletic standpoint, but kind of understood that part, which I think has helped me a ton. And uh, the people here have been so helpful. Um, You know, it's, I I really haven't met many coaches in person, uh, which is crazy to say, but a lot of it's been Zoom meetings. Um, but they've just been huge in, in helping me get used to the school. Uh, but also some, some tidbits and some helpful, helpful hints as I, as I get going, um, based on their experience. How did you set your priorities (laughs) rolling in to a program where you have all these like incredibly important platforms you have to build, but you also, you know, have to prepare to play a game in a month. Yeah, that the, the priority has been um, from day one, frankly, getting the guys to be able to play on the field um, as much as we could. Um, you know, and I, I what I did, Jamie, coming in was I basically said, I am one guy. There is a locker room of 50 guys that have a set way of doing things, a set language, a, a way that they're used to doing it. So I'm going to come in and I need to adjust to them. It makes no sense for me to try to impose my will on a team of 50 in five days (laughs) as we get ready for practice. So um, I think a lot of it, my first priority was learning what we do around here and and maybe tweaking it a little bit to, to fill uh, a style and and, and the way I would like to play. Um, But really it was practice planning and and getting ready to, to game plan and, you know, we had a month before our first game, um, but really we only had about eight days on the field of real practice um, because of COVID uh, procedures and protocols we had to phase in. So our first two weeks, it was basically like camp stations, um, you know, where we were rotating guys around and we were doing stick work and 
it was based on where they lived and, and some of the other parameters. So it was, it wasn't like we had just attack that we were doing skill work with. It was attack D a face-off guy. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it was just being creative and, and understanding there's a baseline of skills that we just need and, and yeah. working on those. Um, and then the, the second two weeks we were able to go half field. Um, so it was kind of fun. We were creative in, creating some transition and full field drills where guys didn't pass the midline, uh, physically. Um, so just trying to get some more game like experience and then, and then finally getting into full field. Um, you know, and, and then as the season progressed, I feel like we went through experiences and learning opportunities that allowed me to kind of lay that foundation, um, Mm -hmm. almost on the fly instead of having this pre-planned process, like you would think you would coming in. It's so interesting to think about the difference between the pre-planned model that normally coaches are, are presented with the opportunity to do it that way versus the opportunity that you had, which was going to be very different. I think it might be kind of refreshing just to get started and just to get to know people <laughs> and, and, and to build it as you go rather than deciding as a first time head coach, you know, what your priorities are going to be and, becoming a stickler on something that maybe, you know, maybe you kind of learned what the priorities really are for, for a program, which you probably already knew from your Marine Corps days. It's the relationships more than anything. hundred percent. In some ways, due to the timing, it made it easier. There wasn't quite as much overthinking right. as there might have been. It was just, okay, these five decisions are already made for us. Like we can't, our uniforms are our uniforms, our gears are gear. Yeah. Our practice time is set here's our game schedule, like just go. Um, so in some ways, yeah, it made it a little bit easier. And, you know, some people initially talked about, well, maybe it's just an experimental year and you just kind of figure out what you have. And I didn't look at it that way. Um, I looked at it like we're going in and we are going to compete right away. Like we're going to win games. Um, and, but, but also, part of it is you're kind of evaluating what you have, where you're going and, and what you want to tweak moving forward. Um, yeah. it, it was a cool lens into, into the program. Um, so it, it, it had its, I think it was a great opportunity in, in so many ways. Um, so, um, did you have some priorities, um, themes, um, just values that you did want to, make sure that they knew that, that, that you know, there's, there's so many, but, but you kind of almost have to just choose fewer of them when you don't have time, you know, you have to just keep it so simple and basic and, and just like these, you know, three or four things, we just got to make sure we do. Yeah. I think, um, you know, a couple of things are the, the coming in my, my, I don't know if it's mantra vision, how, whatever term you want to use for it um, yeah. is approach to excellence. Um, and, and I, you know, I come from a place that uses be the best, um, and, and coach Beardmore was awesome at coining that phrase. Um, and I guess I try to spin off of it a little bit. Um, but to me, you know, I talked to our guys about how, how we approach things will set us up for success. So whether you are defending a Dodger, how you approach that Dodger is going to dictate to some degree your success or failure. Um, how you catch the ball on a Dodge is going to, going to f- determine some of your success. Um, you know, listen, it, sometimes it, it's, it's a little bit chilly here in Worcester. Sometimes, um, you know, when you go to class, how you approach going to class on a cold day, when you got to get up in the morning is going to 
determine how much you learn that day. Um, and then the excellence part is just be, do the best you can at everything you do. Um, and, and that's kind of the standard here yeah. um, that we're trying to implement. Um, so I think we started with that and then it was um, being fundamental. And, and this is something I learned from coach soul, you know, um, more games are lost than are won um, with poor fundamentals. So trying to be fundamental, making the other team beat you and playing good complimentary lacrosse. Um, those were kind of the beginning phases of what we were trying to do. So interesting. Can you dive into a little bit more depth into uh, what you mean by being fundamental and complementary phases? And yeah, so, so sure. I think, um, again, it's, it's, you know, I guess I'll use another cliche, I guess, but it's about playing percentages. So, yep. you know, I, I think so often guys are so results oriented right now. Um, you know, whether it's the social media world we live in, the news cycles we live in. Um, but it's like, they're so worried about the end result. And what we try to do is say, let's just try to set ourselves up for success. So it's about show me that you can make the simple plays first and, and make the easy plays. And then we'll build up to expand your repertoire. Um, you know, but certain guys are trying to do all this flashy stuff. And I know you have the debate of fundamentals or, or not. Um, <laughs> but I think being able to pass a ball, like being able to move the ball quickly, get it out of your stick quickly, um, throw the ball hard, play with pace. Um, all of those things from an offensive standpoint are fundamentals. Defensively, playing defense with your feet, not just lunging with your hands and, and your stick, getting your stick into guys' gloves and being disruptive. Um, those were being aggressive and, and getting out to guys, getting in, getting out. Those kinds of things were the fundamental kind of the foundational things, I guess you would say, um, yeah. to what we were trying to teach. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, my, my take on fundamentals, which you kind of referenced is probably not all that different. I just kind of view them as less about a technique and more about the principle of we need to be able to move the ball quickly. Yes. We need to be able to possess the ball. We need to take good shots. Um, there's a lot of different ways. You, you coach a lot of great players over and played with a lot of great players and watched a lot of great players over your career as ball boy player coach. Um, everybody does things a little bit differently and there's a lot of good ways to do it. But in the end, good offenses move the ball very quickly, right? And they make simple plays that are right in front of them even when there are you know, maybe bigger plays to be made at times. Uh, but just hitting singles, right, is is – is it is fundamental to because it's part of possession. It's part of just extending the defense. You don't need to skip it all the time. And and, and again, like you can go back through the debate, talk about shooting. Like, yeah, you got to shoot overhand. You got to shoot overhand. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, you know, I, there are certain ways that we talk about overhand shooting, and I wouldn't say it's exactly overhand. Right. Um, but but to me, it's more important. You got to put the ball with the same release in different spots on the goalie yeah. and, and, and you've got to be deceptive in that way where your release is the same and it's going all over the place. If you can do that consistently, have at it. <laughs> yeah, um, no doubt. And like, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that, you know, some people are really good underhand shooters, so you're probably going to let them do it. And some people aren't as good and they probably need to hit the cage a little bit more often because they've got the velocity to do it. And overhand makes it a little bit easier to kind of at least put it on net. 
Um, but yeah, it's so interesting. And, and when you're starting a program, I mean, at the end of the day, you just got to establish these, these, these really fundamental principles. And, and sometimes the techniques will follow suit. Um, a little bit about um, not beating yourself or letting people beat you. What did you mean by that? I think it's just playing smart lacrosse. Um, again, it goes to some degree, it goes back to the fundamentals, being able to catch and throw and, and um, you know, riding and clearing, I would say more clearing is, is so important in our game. And, um, you know, again, not having many practices fulfilled, we certainly struggled with that early and, and it, it kind of reared its ugly head in some of our games. Um, so I think it's that, I think it's, you know, listen, to say that you're never going to foul in a game is just not realistic, but what kind of fouls are we giving up? You know, is it a dumb push where you saw the guys, the back of his Jersey and you just ran up his back or is it, Oh man, you were going for that check and you just happened to clip his feet or whatever. And that's a trip. So kind of understanding that part of it um, and trying to play, I guess, a clean game um, where we're not giving up too many chances, you know, frankly early. And we talked about it and the guys, to their credit got a lot better. We were throwing a lot of feeds from X into the crease or forward. And the ball was like going right to the midline. Like we were giving teams fast break opportunities. Um, those are the kind of things that we want to try to avoid. Um, and again, it happened early and our guys to their credit, it, they got better doing that. Um, you know, listen, there's a time and a place to throw checks and go over the head and do those kinds of things at goal line extended, or as a guy's getting to the middle, that's beating yourself, yeah. <laughs> um, especially at our level. So kind of those things are just on. It's a really interesting and delicate balance between player development and discipline in the sense that at the University of Maryland, all of a sudden you had some of the best players in the nation in every single position. And they were going to be able to make plays and reining them in might be, you know, something that you needed to do a little bit more in some cases than when you're taking over a program that needs development and you, you know, it's a, it's a matter of winning the battle versus winning the war a little bit, you know, like you might give yourself a better chance in this battle if you just didn't turn it over. But, but by the end of the year, maybe you'd be a better team and a better offense if there was a little bit of freedom. And how do you find that strike that balance? Um, I, again, I, I look at it like there's two pieces of it. It's the decision to make a play and then the execution of the play. Yeah. So, um, again, I, I, you can talk about sliding decisions. Yeah. Well, you know, why are you, you know, you slid to this guy and he is running away from the goal at 15 yards. You're creating offense for them. Um, and maybe it didn't result in a goal, but long-term to your point, if you keep doing that, you're going to be vulnerable um, eventually, you know, as opposed to, hey, you slid to the right spot. You, you made the great decision. You just took a bad approach and, and the guy ran by you and scored. Well, we got part one right. We got to get part two right and combine them both. So I think that's how we talk about it a lot. Um, and, and to your point, there is that balance of um, – part of it is the decision-making with the skill is hard. <laughs> yeah. And, and so you try to separate those to some degree, but it, it, you can't really, it, it all has to be together. Um, and I know that's listening to a bunch of your podcasts in the past, that's the free play and all that stuff that comes into it. Um, you know, and I think there's that part of it that the skill, um, 
and the development pieces like crawling. And then you want to walk fast. You got to get going quickly. So as soon as you get your feet underneath you, you're, you're going and you're making, having to implement those skills with decisions at the same time in a live type drill is what we try to try to do here. I love it. You used the word earlier when you're talking about only being able to clear it and not crossing the midline. You talked about, use the word game-like. And I wanted to get your definition. I've been thinking a lot about that word lately. Um, and I was curious about your definition of what, what game-like means to you. Um, I think game-like is putting guys in situations that become chaotic <laughs> um, and involve, um, again, it goes back to decision-making, involve multiple people that makes decisions harder and, and potentially creates challenges and pressure due to space. Um, so one of the things that we, you know, we try to do is, is have drills that have small space, um, which is really hard to do early when you're first doing these drills, cause it is tough to watch. Um, but you have to stay patient with it. And eventually the guys just start figuring it out. Um, and so there's that balance of, of giving them the, the comfort of, and the confidence that they can make plays, but then also challenging them to learn how to do it in a higher pressure situation. Um, and again, I just feel like there are certain things that you try to script and practice. It, it, it gets that situation scripted. The problem is you're never going to get it like that in a game. Yeah. So it's kind of false training in some ways. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you kind of do that to, to install something or let the guys understand the situation, but then it's trying to create those situations on the fly when they have to make decisions. Totally. It's so interesting. Um, you know, you script something out cause you want to practice something and accomplish something. Um, but in the end, chaotic is the word you use to try to make your game like situations because games are, are chaotic. You cannot control a game. Games spin out of control all the time. You're like, what happened? We were, we were doing great. And all of a sudden, like, you know, and cause it's, you know, but I think to make a practice game, like I think in part is just this, the situation itself has to be similar to what you might see in a game, but it's that chaotic part or maybe the competitive part in the hands off part from the coach. And, and I think, um, you know, in the Marine Corps, going back to that, they use the fog of war. Like a lot of it is in a game. It's just the fog of war. Like, you can simulate stuff all you want, but it just is hard to, to get to the game. Like, um, you know, and, and that's again, using the Marine Corps mantra to it, you fall back on your training, you know, you don't never believe that people step up and rise to the occasion. There is no such thing. You fall back on your training. So again, that's to me, that's the fundamentals part. Yeah. Like, if you don't have good fundamentals and you can't throw the ball cleanly, well, when you get under pressure, that that situation gets exacerbated. Um, so that's where being efficient with your stick work in and out and, and having the same release point all the time is huge. Um, Cause it's easy when you're in the beach with, without shoes on slinging the ball around and then harder when you got a defenseman lumbering down you and you got gloves or stick in your gloves. Really? All right. Switching gears. Um, what is your offensive philosophy? Um, I think a lot of it is, um, and, and I think the term gets used a lot now positionless. Um, 
you know, but I, I think it's in, in general terms, it's getting the six players to play to their strengths and, and play together um, and putting the defense at in, in situations that forces them to react and feel uncomfortable. Um, so that is a big, broad brush way to say okay. it. Um, but, but I don't like, again, I think there's a lot of the two man game elements, um, that I think are, are wildly successful. Um, you know, I, what I've always tried to do is take a look at our parts and develop something that maximizes those strengths. Um, and, and frankly, that was a challenge here. Um, we're having to put in an offense and I don't know what our guys can even do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, but I think, again, it goes back to, um, ball movement. It goes back to off ball movement, um, you know, and, and getting two guys, getting two defensemen on you and taking advantage of those uneven situations. Well, you talked earlier about playing the percentages. How do you look at those? Uh, when you think about your offensive philosophy? Um, I think it's, um, again, trying to set yourselves up and put yourself in position to, to score goals. And, and at the very least, um, you know, have, we talk about positive possessions. So, you know, we might not have scored, but we got two or three great looks. The goalie made a save. There was a knockdown, whatever it was. We put pressure on the defense. Um, you know, but, but I think a lot of it is, um, you know, and you talk about this often, get into the middle of the field and taking shots from high, high percentage positions, um, understanding individually our shooting range and, and what we're good at. And, you know, if, if you're good from 10 and in, don't try to shoot from 15, <laughs> uh, um, you know, and, and, and if, you're, if you're in a position where you need to shoot your righty and you need to shoot left-handed, like understand where to put the ball. So it, it's either a really hard save for the goalie um, or, or it goes in, um, you know, we talk about never want to take a shot that the goalie catches. That is a bad shot. Um, so just trying to, trying to play the percentages there. Yeah. So shot selection, uh, assisted shots too, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. And role under understanding of roles. You know, I think, the best offenses I've been a part of all six guys understand not only their role, but the role of the other five guys mm -hmm. and they help work within that. Um, and that's where to me, offense gets, gets fun. I, I really enjoyed watching Maryland offense over the last couple of years. Um, and it was truly positionless lacrosse. And it looked like it gave, like you said, not only gave your players, like you said, uh, an opportunity to play to their strengths, uh, but it also almost gives players a chance to avoid not playing to their strength, which is part of it too. Like if you have to dodge somebody on command at this time in this area, it's a lot harder than for these guys that are incredible off ball guys that, you know, can set a pick and get open and, and dodge, you know, off an approach rather than having to, all right, well, they put a shorty on you today. You know, you got to create offense for us. Uh, totally agree. And, and again, I think something that, that listen, I'm called a culprit of it too. Maybe I've come around to some degree, like everybody talks about winning your matchups on ball. Rarely do we ever talk about winning your matchups off the ball. Right. Um, and that's where the game's won, in my opinion. Um, you know, and, and you only have the ball a certain time, um, but you're off the ball a lot.
and and I agree with you. It's um, again, it's trying to get guys to set up for their strengths. You know, there are some guys. Geez, you watch Jared Bernhardt. Like he can take the ball up off the end line and dodge. There aren't many guys that can do that. Nope, he can, <laughs> you know, Michael Sowers, you know, Chris Gray, those guys that we're watching right now, like they're super talented. There are a lot of guys to use a basketball analogy, have to beat their guy off a pass and then they catch and dribble. You know, it's just really hard to, to pull it out there. So, um, you know, listen, frankly, some guys enjoy playing with a pick. Some guys don't. And so it, it doesn't make any sense. And I talked to our guys here about it. Like you got to communicate with me on what you like and you don't like and what you can't think you can and can't do. I'll communicate with you on, I know you don't think you can, but you need to work at it because we have to get you to do this. <laughs> yeah. Right. But for the most part, it doesn't make any sense for me as a coach to force something on a guy that he's just never going to be capable of doing. Right. Um, and that's, again, that's that give and take um, with the coach player relationship, I think is so important. You mentioned earlier, one of the fundamentals of offense is getting two players on you. And you also mentioned, you know, the off ball part of the game as being such an opportunity. Um, I've been thinking a lot about off ball picking and messing around with it. And it is actually pretty doable to create off ball double teams and engage two players off ball on a very regular basis. And I'm thinking to myself, man, you know, you talk about an opportunity you can get off ball double teams, <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable, but it, it's doable. It, it, it is, it, it, you know, and again, it's, 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 that's such off ball is such a skill. Um, and again, at, at the division one level, um, most guys are really talented in high school. So they're handling the ball. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so you don't have that many guys that, that work off ball and, and it's a skill that, you know, I think as coaches, we all talk about teaching, but um, some of it is just an intangible and, and some of it is something you can work on. Um, yeah. But, but that's, that's huge. Cause again, you may play a defense, like they got really good defensemen. You're, they're not going to let you beat them. Um, and so how do you gain leverage? You might have to do it off the ball. No doubt. You know, I think so many people sort of define off ball as like clearing space, <laughs> you know? And then you got sort of the man up off ball of, you know, being in the perfect spot to be able to make the next play, you know, and then there's sort of the crease play off ball and, you know, where you just try to, you know, not be in the way. Um, and then there's the off ball picking, which usually gets kind of put into the crease play actually. Yeah. Um, but the off ball picking actually most, most, most coaches, we don't, I mean, I never did it that much to be honest with you. Um, I think now like why, why would we exchange when we could pick yep. because exchanging is fine. You can change a matchup or get them to move with you and stuff, but it's so limiting. I mean, like what if you sealed and brought that guy into the space? What if you slipped through the gap when they switched? Um, what if they weren't switching and you set a pick and, and created Cause that's how, you know, we go back to this. How do you do it? Get an off ball double team. Well, if you slip through the gap because two guys are engaged with the potential of, of a cutter uh, or if you, you know, cut hard off a pick and one guy switches and one guy stays kind of the same thing. But if one guy switches and one guy stays, there's two on one. And that will happen in off ball picking like so often because they, they can't even focus on you. Unlike on ball picking where they actually get to focus on actually defending an on ball pick and roll off ball. They got to worry about the ball. And, and, and if you're doing off ball picking, a lot of times they forget about the ball and that lets the Dodger 
come around. Like it, it takes away the slide or the help or somebody gets open on the crease. Um, I agree with you. It, it again, we're, we're something we've been toying around with and still got a lot of work to do, but, um, yes. you know, that's, you, you're, you're without the ball more than you are with it. Um, you know, and something we just got to keep working on and teaching. So interesting. I once, um, I always tell the story about the conversation I had with Gary Gate one time in the nineties where I was like, Gary, what's your, what's your best move? Like, what's your go-to? I wanted to learn some new dodge, you know? <laughs> and he's like, uh, I just kind of wait for somebody to overplay me. And then I beat them. And I was so disappointed in that response because I wanted something like better than that. And then like 25 years later, I'm like, Oh, well, because if you just keep picking on and off the ball and moving the ball, eventually someone's going to overplay you and you're going to be walking yeah. right in. Of course, Gary Gate is a master of making you overplay him too, yeah. which is a segue into a, a question for you, um, which is about the role of deception in offense or defense and how you sort of think about it, how you communicate it and try to teach it. Again, I think it's a skill, um, you know, and, and um, it, I think it's a skill everywhere. I mean, shoot, you could say deception in the goalie play. Yeah. Um, you know, guy, guy that played at Maryland um, in the nineties. Yeah, man. Talk about a guy that uses deception. And, and admittedly he got me on a couple of those when I was a young pup, um, <laughs> you know, but I, I think um, it's, it's so important. Um, you're, again, it goes back to that fall go war to some degree. It goes back to the, the challenges in the gameplay. Like you're, you're trying to make your opponent think you're doing one thing and get and do another and catch them off guard. Um, you know, and I think, especially when it comes to faking and I think we've gone gotten a long way here, but it doesn't have to be much. Right. And, and it's, there, there are times when people are trying to be so deceptive that, that like they take themselves out of position or, or, or mess, mess with themselves. So it's, it's just about being subtle movements here or there or a head nod or, or a head bob or, you know, geez, we were doing a drill. Um, I guess it was two days ago and one of the defenseman was on the black team and the offensive guy was on the white team and the defenseman just called for the ball. And the white guy threw him the ball, <laughs> you know? So like deception can take all kinds of different forms, um, you know, but I think that's where guys that get comfortable and, and then can anticipate the next play helps them to be deceptive. Totally. That's kind of where the word fluency comes in with deception as kind of like a canary in the coal mine for fluency, because yeah. you can't, if you just randomly fake, it's not really being deceptive. It's just, it's just, it's just like, you know, blurting out words in another language as opposed to the fluency of understanding it. Whereas if you, if you're seeing what's sort of happening and you know what's about to happen, and then you can then, um, as uh, Ted Creighton from Joy of the People says, uh, non-verbally communicate with your opponent to get them to help you. <laughs> I like that. That's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> I had to quote him. Um, or verbally communicate. I remember being on the roof at Brown in like 1987 and this kid pulls it like he was guarding me. It was like 8.30 at night on like a Tuesday. There, nobody's up on the roof except the team. And I'm like, we're doing some riding and clearing. And I was, my team was clearing. 
And um, Dom was trying to get this 10 man ride in and, and all of a sudden the ball starts being cleared. And I took, I looked to my right, I turned my head and I'm like, Oh my God, those girls are so hot. <laughs> and he turns around to look, bang, I take off running up the field, catch the ball laughing while he's getting totally ripped. But and Dom doesn't usually rip people, but they rip Zit on that day. Um, so that was the, that was the example of the verbal communication. Usually it's nonverbal, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's something that, you can present it, but it can't actually be taught. It kind of has to be learned. And, and to me, that's where the gameplay comes in, in and, and all of that stuff is, is huge, you know, and, and I know you're big on the three by and, and uh, had, had Andy Hillgartner on a couple of weeks ago. And, um, you know, that's part of my, my upbringing too, that I didn't mention is, you know, I was, wasn't participating in the Thacker, but had played a lot of those games with a lot of those guys. And, and that's where a lot of that stuff comes into play is, that's uh, right just in the backyard messing around with a tennis ball and, and two friends and learning all that stuff. Same age as Skeets, right? Yep. He's uh, two years ahead of me. Yep. But yeah. grew up kind of that same, same time. Era, yeah. That's really cool. All right. Let's switch gears to defense a little bit. What, what's your defensive philosophy? Um, um, as you enter, you know, your, your, your head coaching career. Yeah. Again, I think a lot of it is um, trying to take, it, it's almost, <laughs> Same thing going the other way, take, yeah. take away the, the opponent's strengths um, and, and try to take them out of what they're doing. Um, and you use the word deception. You, you could use that word or keeping them off balance yeah. um, to the extent you can. Um, and, you know, I, it's impossible not to have anybody shoot in the game of lacrosse for a full game. Like yeah. shots are going to happen. I think it's about what shots are we willing to give up in what way um, is kind of the ideal thing. So um, again, it's trying to play percentages and, and um, flip the script on the offense, so to speak, which sounds pretty, pretty simple and, and kind of a cop-out, but that's truly what it is. Um, and, and, you know, be disruptive. I think that's what we've been trying to do is, is put pressure on guys by just being disruptive and annoying. Um, you know, you can probably appreciate this as a former attackman as I was like, a, a guy would just put his stick in your gloves all game long. Just is just terrible to play against. It's annoying, yeah. you know, and that's, so you don't have to throw big slap checks and all that stuff. Just put the stick in the gloves and just make the other team make mistakes. How do you find the balance between keeping things simple and being able to have flexibility of being multiple? Yeah. Good. Great question. I think, um, to me, it's in some ways, it's like um, a little bit like football. Like there, there are certain building blocks that you have um, and, and terms or, or ways of doing things and maybe just trying to put them in different combinations together, um, which, which changes what you're doing. So, um, you know, again, it's not a big overbearing switch for your guys. It's not like you're not asking them to speak Italian when they've been speaking Spanish. Um, you know, you're just asking them to just change your language just a little bit um, and, and combine it in the right way um, to, to make it a little bit different, or at least again, the deceptive appear different to, to the offense. When it comes down to guarding picks on ball, um, <laughs> how many, <laughs> that's kind of a good example. Like, you know, how many different ways are you going to do it? And at what point is it just too, too hard to remember? 
uh, which one you're going to do on the wing, the goal line behind, you know, push out, get over it, go under it, switch it, jump it. Um, how do you keep it simple, but at the same time, not let yourself, you know, just get torched when somebody knows exactly what you're doing and how to beat it. Yeah. Coach Lynch, who is uh, our defensive coordinator here is, is chuckling and he's not even hearing the question, but we've gotten over that a bunch, uh, in the last couple months, trying to figure that part of it out. Um, and again, I come from an offensive standpoint, right? So you typically in a lot of times you're either trying to get leverage or get switches, um, as an offensive team. So, um, I think to your point, again, it's, it's being able to change it up. Um, but, but getting the guys to execute at a high rate without having to overthink too much. And I think ultimately it is, um, the clear, concise communication that is, is important. So we, we talk about, you know, on defense, listen, if we're going to mess it up, let's all seven of us mess it up together. Um, and again, it, maybe it's not the way we would draw it up on a whiteboard, but if we all are doing it at the same time, thinking the same thing, we'll probably be okay and we'll survive it. Yep. Um, so to me, where you get caught on picks is the, the guy defending the ball and the guy defending the pick are not on the same page and you get caught. So we talked a lot about just be on the same page, communicate, be clear and concise. Um, and then again, we've talked about the other half of communication is listening. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're being talked to and communicated to, you got to listen and process and be able to be on the same page. So interesting. All right. Last topic. Let's talk a little bit about recruiting. You're going to be able to get on the road with some new gear <laughs> starting in June. Thank God. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Man, it's been a long time. Sheesh. It really has. What, um, give me, uh, give, give, give us the, uh, the update on Holy Cross recruiting. How many spots do you have for 22s and, if you know how many people you're taking and stuff like that, it, I think people would love to know. Yeah. Thanks. I think, um, you know, in terms of the spots we're, we're, we still are pretty wide open. Um, you know, again, that was one of the, you talked about coming in, coming in and, and hitting the ground running. Um, you know, I, I wanted to take a little bit of time to get to know our guys and this place before we just really dove right headfirst into the recruiting part. Um, a credit to coach Farley and coach Lynch. They've kind of kept the wheels going a little bit, but um, so we're, we're, we're wide open for the 22s, um, you know, and looking forward to, to this summer kind of getting after it and, and have started talking to guys and, and we're in the process of having those conversations, but um, you know, haven't really established much yet. And, and I think in terms of numbers, I, I would say most programs are probably this way. You know, we look to, basically recruit of uh, a starting lineup plus a couple guys, I would say. Yep. Um, so anywhere 10 to 15, something like that. Um, you know, we, we have a relatively large class coming in uh, next year for the 21s. Um, you know, so I don't know that we'll go crazy with numbers, um, but, but I would say somewhere 10, 10 to 12 is what we're, what we're aiming for. So that's awesome. So for, um, you know, there's usually kind of positions within positions. Are you sort of recruiting those uh, um, specifically for need or are you kind of just trying to find the best available player? How do you sort of view, you know, what you're looking for in, 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 a, in a recruit? So a total cop-out answer is yes, we're trying to do both. Yes. Um, you know, but I think um, that's part of what we're trying to do here is get our process down to, to figure out 
um, how we, how we do this and, and make sure we're as a staff, again, we talk about communication. We're on the same page and communicating the right way. Um, I do think there is a balance there um, between getting the best players, but also finding fits um, for the program. Um, you know, and, and we talked a lot about, we're not just accumulating talent, we're building a team. And mm-hmm. so, you know, talent comes in, in many ways. Um, a lot of people, when you talk recruiting and talk talent, they're just looking at what you do with a stick on the field. I think there's a lot of intangible talent um, that's important to look at and evaluate as well as we're building this thing and laying the foundation moving forward. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, you know, the fact is, is that if you're only looking at the physical talent, you know, you're, you're, you're probably going to be sad later because there's the intangibles are really what gets, gets it done for you. And my question would be, you know, whether it's intangibles of IQ or intangibles of leadership and attitude, how do you, how do you even evaluate those? It's been hard on a computer screen. I will say that first. Yeah. Um, You know, and, and I think, um, you know, I, I kind of use the analogy of, listen, if a guy's sending you a highlight film, it's, it's, it's his resume, basically. Like you're not putting any negative things on your resume when you go for a job interview. So, um, so trying to weed through some of that, I think is important. And, and to me, it kind of goes back full circle to where we started the conversation, which is relationships and, and talking to, talking to those guys and, and getting a feel for them. Um, you know, I'm excited. I'm hopeful that when June starts, some of these school districts and states are still going to be playing high school games. Um, so potentially getting a chance to, to watch some high school ball live, which will be great. Um, but also just getting on the field again. And, and again, I think so much gets missed in the recruiting. Um, you certainly are watching on the field, but you, you kind of have eyes and ears around the periphery too. So how does the guy come off on the sideline? How does he engage with his teammates? Um, you know, they're, they're walking from field to field in a pack. What are they talking about? <laughs> um, you know, I think all those things are important and, and it's been something that we've been missing um, because we haven't been able to been, be live for the last year and, and some. How about, how do you, how do you uh, evaluate IQ? Which maybe you could do on film. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do to uh, talking about anticipation, um, you know, and, and um, it, it's almost like you're, as you're evaluating guys, you're almost putting yourself in their shoes and going, okay, well, given this, what decision should he make? And, and is he making the right thing? Um, you know, I think a lot of guys, when we talk about seeing two plays ahead or two passes ahead um, in, in terms of that anticipation, um, you know, but, but again, I think, Yes, you can see that on screen for sure. A lot of it is like listening to the game and, and hearing the communication, um, seeing the nonverbals that are really hard to see on the screen um, at times. Um, you know, again, I just go back to like, it, if you're clearing and, and the attackman anticipates that the ball's going over that midfielder's head and gets it and saves it from going out of bounds, like nobody talks about that play man, that's a good IQ play. Like he anticipated what was going on. He knew where his guy should have been, knew where the ball was going to be and, and was able to get it. So I think it's those small plays that are, are so important as you, as you start drilling down into to the specific guys you're evaluating. Yeah. And you mentioned it too, the communication. I mean, you can really tell if people know what they're doing by how, what they're saying, you know, if someone's just like, I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm hot, I'm hot. And you're like, all right, 
Well, first of all, you're not hot. <laughs> it might be 95 degrees, so they might actually be. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, 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 to be able to hear what somebody says is is something that you haven't been able to do um, for two years. And and the other side of it too. Again, you're not on the the screen, but. I don't know. Defense gives up a goal. Like what is that defender doing? Is he just walking back to his spot by himself? Is he talking to guys, engaging with guys, you know, what's going on there? I think those are all things that are so huge at our level. Um, and, and, you know, important parts to see as we evaluate. For sure. Awesome stuff, man. Well, I'm psyched to see you, uh, see the uh, purple gear out on the, on the road this year. Um, best of luck in uh, finishing up your, uh, your spring with all your practices and um, really enjoyed this. Um, best of luck to everything and look forward to having you on again sometime. Thanks so much, Jamie. This was great. And uh, really enjoy watching you and, and listening to podcasts and all that good stuff. You've been great for, for the sport and uh, certainly been a respite during this tough time and, and giving us the, allowing us to scratch the lacrosse itch. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks, brother. We'll be in touch.